we're so thankful that you just took some time to listen with us, learn with us, worship with us. And by the way, I see some of you already going for it. We've got a new little rule here at GFC. We've kind of started to say, hey, during the sermon, if you feel comfortable taking off your mask like I am, you can feel free to go ahead and do that. By the way, let me just touch on that for just a second. This has been a, it's been a difficult time for pastors to know what to do. Let me just say that. Like every pastor has felt that. And I've just appreciated, and I know Pastor Andrew has felt the same way, the way that we've kind of just approached this whole topic has been helpful. We've gotten questions at times, but those questions have never been angry, mean. Maybe you're a little frustrated, but I understand that. And so I just appreciate that. So I just want to say thank you to, to those of you who have had conversation with us. We get it. We don't like wearing it either. I wish I could just like throw this thing away and never touch it again. But just isn't the reality. So I just want to say thank you for that. So right now what we're saying is during the sermon, when we're seated, we're not, and no one's usually really talking but me unless my son is screaming somewhere. But we, you know, I, we can take it off and just kind of, if you're comfortable with that, if you are not comfortable taking your mask off, leave it on. We want to encourage you to do that as well. So thanks for kind of engaging with us in that way. Like I said before, my name is Corey, and uh, I'm excited to start sort of a new conversation with us today or a new sermon series, but actually we're kind of just picking up where we left off. So a couple of months ago, we did a sermon series called what if we took Jesus' words seriously? And we started to have that conversation out of a passage of scripture called Matthew chapter 5. And so Matthew's ch- Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is where we're headed. And what we're doing for kind of the course of the year is we're going to jump back into this passage kind of a few different times over the course of the year. So we're going to focus on it, but we're not going to do it all at once. And so a couple months ago, we ran through the first 12 verses. And what we talked about in those verses was this is a passage called the Sermon on the Mount because literally what's happening is Jesus is kind of up on a hillside teaching. And this was at a point where he was getting a little bit more famous. He was getting a little bit more popular. People from other towns were traveling to see him. If he was coming through a certain town, people made sure to go see him. And so he would have thousands of people come and listen to him speak. And so when he was going to speak to that many people, he would go up on a hill a little bit and kind of have this conversation. And one of the things that we realize about this passage and specifically about the book of Matthew is that one of the things that is so important to Jesus and one of the things that he talks about in this passage is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? How do we engage? And what we would say, what we believe is that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've made that decision in your life, you are then also a member of the kingdom of God. Now that's a very churchy thing to say. So if you've not been around kind of like church lingo or understood what that means, what the basic idea is, is when we decide to follow Jesus, our focus, our, our ideas of how we live are going to shift to not just have our own life in mind or what we can take advantage of on the earth, on the earth here, but that we would make decisions and live our life in a way that reflects the kingdom that we're a part of that's beyond this world. And so that influences the decisions and the choices we make because we don't want to simply be living for this earth. We want to then think about what's coming next. And so that decision is made and that influence is made in the way that we understand what's going on. So when we started this converse, as we start this conversation, our topic is called the heart of the matter. Because what we believe is that when Jesus is talking through these verses, what he's really trying to get us to understand is where the root is of those actions. 
Where does that come from? How do we know that what we're going to do or the way that we're acting or the way that we're interacting with other people is actually for the kingdom of God and not just for ourselves? And what Jesus is going to help us understand is that it comes from the very root of who we are. And so we're going to get to the heart of the matter and try and understand what's going on and how do we know that we're living for the kingdom and not just for ourselves. The first idea I want to present to us this morning is this idea of new kingdom norms. Now, norms are the things that we kind of take as typical, right? We would expect them. So let me give you a couple of examples. If I were to uh, invite you over to my house, or you were going to invite me over to your house for dinner. My next question would be, if I can come, I check my calendar, I say, yes, I can come. My next question would be, what do you want me to bring? Right? That's usually the next thing. That's, that's the norm, right? Because if you've invited me over to your house, I'm probably going to assume that you're providing the main course, but I want to contribute. So I can bring a side, I can bring a dessert, I can bring the drinks, whatever that would be. That's, that's the norm. I know that in a few months, well, really just like a month, when we get into summer and all of a sudden people's schedules start to change, if you're not here for a week, I will still miss you, but it will be a little different than if you're not here in January because you have different plans, right? You're going to go to the beach or you're going to go, it's just summer is that typical time. So the norms, I understand that, you understand that, but maybe you've been in a point or in a place where the norms were different and you had to get used to a different idea or a different way of being than what was normal for you. I remember there was a time, uh, I think it was about 12 or 13 years ago, I went on a mission trip to Santiago, Chile. And so I was working as an intern at the time in the youth group that I had been a part of. And so it was a few college students like myself and then there were a bunch of high schoolers and we were going to Santiago. And so it was, uh, what, two hours to fly to Atlanta from here and then nine hours to Santiago from Atlanta. That's the longest flight I've ever been on. And we get there, and, and Chile itself is not that much different than the United States. Obviously, they speak a different language, but it's still a very well-developed country. And so in a big city like Santiago, you can walk down the street, go in a convenience store, buy a soda, do, you know, just do the normal stuff that you would do. And one of the cool things, and I don't know if it's still this way today, but when we went back then it actually had one of the top five transportation systems in the world. And so that, within the city, you could, there was a different way of like buses and trains and subways and all those things connected. And you could get from anywhere in the city to the other side of the city for less than $2. So it was a very well run, very easy to get from one place to the other. And so we would use that transportation system a lot because it was cheap and you could get wherever you wanted to go. Even we were outside the city by about, 40 minutes, there was still a bus that literally came to the camp so that we could just drive into the city, just right there outside the front gate. And so we would use that, and we were riding along. I remember there was, uh, most of the things were normal, but what we realized when we were there is that when you got on public transportation in Chile, you were a little, supposed to be a little more quiet. And so it was almost like if you've been on a train and there's a quiet car where you're, you go and like you're supposed to just not talk to many people and like have your headphones on and things like that. It was almost like that setting in every one of the modes of public transportation. Well, you put a bunch of American teenagers and college students together in that setting. That didn't last very long. And so I remember specifically there was a time we were on the subway. We were all to one end of the car that we were riding in. And we knew that we were supposed to be quiet, but we forgot. And so we were doing things like trying to do the surf like while you're riding, like when they take off and when you stop so that you're not touching the rails and like doing that and everything. And we all kind of realized within the same like 10 seconds 
that we were being really loud. And so we all kind of looked to the other end of the car, and all the Chilean people were just like staring at us. They weren't angry, but they were a little judgmental. <laughs> and they were just like, you know, you silly Americans that are so noisy and loud. And they seemed like they were kind of used to it um, because that was just typically what they would experience. But the norms were different. You go to a big city with a bunch of teenagers and college students today, and it's kind of normal that they're going to be loud, right? You know if you're staying in a hotel with a bunch of teenagers, right? Like, there's just it's just noisy. And it was just different there. And so we learned quickly that the norms were different. What we were expected to do in that setting was a little bit different than what we were typically used to. And the same can be true of the kingdom of heaven. It's not the same necessarily that we have to sit still and be quiet and not do bad. Like, that's not the point. But the point is, there's supposed to be a shift. There's supposed to be a change in us in what's normal for us and what's expected of us and what we're going to do and how we're going to interact with others. And so we're going to dig into that a little bit today to help us understand what those norms are and what our lives are to look like if we are followers of Jesus, if we are members of the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 5, where we left off a couple months ago. And if you have a Bible, you can open it or turn it on. We're going to put the words up on the screen here. You go to our website, you can go to our follow along page, and you'll find all the verses and all the notes there too, if you'd like to check that out. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to pick up in verse 13. And verse 13 says this, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Now let me explain what this means, because when we think of salt, right, you you probably, what I think of, maybe what you think of, is the little salt shaker that just kind of sits on your kitchen or dining room table. You don't really think about it or notice it unless you need it. And so you sit down at a meal, and maybe you want a little bit of salt, and so you just sprinkle it on there. Or maybe you've got it in your pantry somewhere, and you use it when you make things, but you probably don't dump a whole lot of salt in there. You use a little bit, right? And so it just kind of is in what we do, and it's it's always there, but it's not necessarily noticed. Salt was a little bit of a bigger deal at the point when Jesus is telling us this information. Because salt was something that they would use as a preservative. They would actually kind of use it almost like a dry rub on meat. Because remember, they didn't have refrigerators, they don't have freezers, so they didn't get to you know, get their meat, come home and freeze it till two weeks from then when they want to use it. So they would take the salt and they would kind of rub it into the meat and that would help to preserve it a little longer than a few hours at room temperature. And so what Jesus is telling us is we get to be the preservative. <laughs> we get to be the refrigerator. What does that mean? It means that as we interact in culture, as we interact with other people, the way that we live, it should counteract the impact of sin. So sin, we know, brings death. It's a negative influence. It causes things to go in the wrong direction. And what we get to do is we get to live our lives in opposition to that. We get to lean into that and try and push things back the other way. And it doesn't mean that we can change or remove sin completely, but it's something that we should be moving against, we should be making sure that it's not a part of our lives as well. One of the things that Jesus says here is he says, what what good is salt that's lost its flavor? Let me give you a little bit of a different way of understanding that. What Jesus is saying is, what good is salt if it's not just salt anymore, or it's lost its ability to be salt, or it's contaminated by something else? See, salt is something that purifies. Salt is something that gets rid of the things that aren't supposed to be there. And so 
there's kind of a double understanding here where if we are the salt, we have to make sure that we stay uncontaminated. Because the problem back then for them was if something got mixed into the salt that shouldn't be there, they didn't want to rub it into the meat that they were going to cook. They would get rid of it. They would throw it out, almost like we would throw out salt in the winter. A little different. It doesn't work this way, I know. But you throw out salt in the winter just so you don't slip, right? But you're going to trample on it. You're not going to eat it. It's not really good for anything else to walk on. That's what Jesus is saying. So he's saying we have to make sure that we, as the salt, stay purified, that we are able to be the salt. And then what we get to do with that is we get to live as the help to move things in a positive direction in our culture. So we shouldn't contribute to the sin problem. We should push back against it by removing it from ourselves and maybe helping others remove it too, right? If you see somebody else that's moving in a negative direction, they're making poor choices, they're going to a place where they shouldn't be, you sit down and you lovingly have that conversation with them. Hey, what's going on here? Why are you doing this? What's what's happening? You don't contribute to the poor decision-making that's going on. You don't make a poor decision or cause others to move in a wrong direction, right? You don't contribute to the peer pressure of a situation. But we stand up and we go against it. And the way that I, I wanted us to understand this is don't let things stay where they don't belong for too long. Don't let things stay where they don't belong for too long. Maybe you felt this. I know I have. I go to the store and I get ice cream. And the timer starts in my head for how long I have to get that ice cream back into a freezer. Because I know, right, especially if it's in the summer and I get into my car that's been sitting in the sun for a while, that stuff is starting to melt immediately. So I don't want to make another stop. I don't want to go here. I don't want to do that. I want to get home. I want to get that in. Same thing with the meat or whatever else. I remember there was a time a couple months ago. I don't know why I did this. My wife went to the store. She got a bunch of groceries. We brought them all in. And then usually what I do is I take the stuff that needs to go down to our basement to the basement. So we have a little like pantry shelves down there. We have a refrigerator and we have a freezer. So there was a bunch of stuff by the steps, so I take it downstairs, and for whatever reason, I didn't realize orange juice was in one of the bags. I put the bag on the shelf, and I forgot that it was there. I didn't remember that it was orange juice. And so the next day, Becca goes down to get something off the shelf. She goes, was there a reason you put the orange juice on the shelf? <laughs> I was like, nope, just forgot it was there, right? And so because it sat there overnight, it wasn't good anymore. It stayed in a place it wasn't supposed to be for too long, and because it did that, it wasn't good anymore. That's what we're talking about. We see something out of place, we put it back into place. We are the agents to make things, kind of bring them back and put them the way that they're supposed to be, understand the way that God wants his kingdom to work, the way that he wants us to live, and then we contribute to that moving in a positive direction. And in doing that, we get to be the salt of the earth. The next verses, in verses 14 and 15, he says this, You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. This idea of light and being the light of the world is actually something that comes up in Scripture a lot. We're going to look at two or three other places where this actually pops up. But Jesus says, not only are you supposed to be salt, you're supposed to be light. And he contrasts it in two different ways. He says, if you see a city that's way up on a hill and there's a little bit of light coming from it, you're probably still going to be able to see it because it's elevated. It's up where we're just able to see things and light travels very far. So you're going to be able to see it. And then he talks about in a home, right? What we understand, we, they didn't have light switches. So, you know, you come into my house, we need your, your house to turn on a light. 
You walk into my house, you just say, hey, Echo, turn on the lights, and then there you go. Someone at home just had me turn on their lights for them. You're welcome. So that's how the lights turn on. They couldn't do that, so they would take a candle. They would put it up higher. They wouldn't just put it on a table like we would maybe do it today as like an ambiance thing. And they would put it up a little higher so that everyone could benefit from the light that would fill the room. Can I just like touch base on what's interesting to me about this specific near and far? Because he talks about the city on a hill, which is far away. He talks about in a home, which is near. Isn't it a lot easier to look good from further away than it is close up? You think about that for a minute. We are called to be light. From far away, we could look really good. But what are we like in our own homes? What are we like to the people around us? What are we like to our, uh, the person who lives in the dorm with us? What are we like when people get up close? Like, is the light the same? Are we the same person we seem to be from far away? That like, maybe you've met someone and you're like, oh, man, I really want to get to know that person. Then you get to know that person. You're like, ah, maybe that was a bad idea. Because we just realize when you actually get to see what's going on. So I think Jesus sets us up here early and says, listen, the person you are from far away, the person you're giving light from farther away, you have to be the same when things are close up. And so what else does he say about the light of the world? I want to jump to John chapter 8. We're just going to read one verse. So you can just follow along on the screen if you want to. John 8, verse 12 says this, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have light that leads to life. So we see in Matthew 5, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. John chapter 8, Jesus says, he is the light of the world. And So we get this contrast where there's almost this handing off of Jesus has the light and he's going to hand it to us. And what we understand is when Jesus, and we'll see this in another verse really quickly here, but Jesus, while he's here, he's the light. When he left, we get to be the light. And so what does he say that's so important? He says, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness. Listen, it doesn't take a follower of Jesus. It doesn't take recognizing or understanding or knowing God to recognize that there are problems in the world around us. And so when we look at that, we go, you know, everybody goes through dark times. And Jesus says, if you walk with me or you follow me, you won't have to walk in the darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And so we get to take that light and hand it to other people. We get to reflect the kind of light that Jesus says he has that leads to life. And we get to hand that to others. So then let's go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, because then he explains how we do this. It says, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So says the way that you do this is by doing good works, by showing up in a positive way, by being the person that are, are, are interacting with other people the way that Jesus would interact with them. We get to share that light. And so here's the thing, right? We know that our works, we'll talk about this in a little bit too, our works do not save us, but our works are evidence of the salvation we have. And so we get to be salt and light by being the preservative of culture to try and move things in the kingdom way that Jesus would want them to go. And then we get to be light. And what we know about light is that light brings hope. It's hope at a time when you need it. Maybe you've been in a situation where you've, been stuck overnight somewhere, or you've just been in a dark place and you're waiting for that light to come. 
There was a time when I, uh, I've, different times in life, I've driven overnight somewhere. So long distances, we would drive to Florida when I was a kid overnight. We, and I remember this one time, my friend, uh, my best friend, Mike, he was getting married. He lives in Wisconsin. And so me and a friend of mine, we decided we, I was going to his wedding. I was in his wedding. So we were going to go. And so we decided, the two of us, we got done work on, I don't know, maybe a Friday night. And we left and we drove to Wisconsin overnight. This was a long time ago when I was young and stupid. And so we, we drove overnight. And you hit like 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. It's been dark for a long time. And you're getting tired. And you're driving in a place you've never been before. And I'll never forget, the first time I ever saw Chicago was the sunrise of that morning. And driving through there, you, you, we were just waiting for the sun to come up. Like, please, can it just be light out, right? And as soon as the sun came up, we had more energy. We felt more optimistic about getting to where we were going to go. And it just changed the demeanor in the car. Light brings hope. When light shows up in a dark place, it's a positive thing. And so what Jesus is saying is by, by the good works we're going to do to other people, by what we're going to do that's going to reflect Jesus to them is going to bring them hope. We get to preserve the culture, move against sin, force back against that. And we also get to give people hope that maybe are in darkness, going through a difficult time in a frustrating place. I want to go one more place where this idea is talked about in the in the um, the light of the world. First John chapter one, starting in verse five, it says this, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say that we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. So what's more here? He says God is light. So we've got God is light, and then we've got Jesus is the light of the world, and then Jesus says you are the light of the world. We get to hand this light off, almost like the Olympics, right, with the torch. This gets handed off so that we get to send this and help people understand it and be the light that's in this. But John says something very important. He says, listen, if you identify as a Jesus follower, if you identify as a person of the kingdom of God, but you do not live the way that you are called to live, you are living in sin. Because we're called to live as people of light. And if we stay in spiritual darkness, we are doing something that is wrong. And then in verse 7, he wraps it up. He says, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let me just say it this way for us to understand. Our influence in the world must be greater than its influence on us. Our influence on the world must be greater, or our context, or our home, or our class, or our team has to be greater than its influence on us. Because we are salt and light. Listen, darkness can't stop light. When light enters a space, the darkness goes away. It can't stop. So we're called to be that light, and we're called to move the darkness away. Bring hope to people that need it, and have our influence be greater than its influence on us. It might be easy for me to say this, to stand up here and talk about this and take this passage and help us understand it. But here's what I know will happen, maybe for you, maybe for me. Monday shows up, you oversleep through your alarm, your kid's up all night, you get to work late, your boss rings you out, you have another problem at work, you get home, the car, car has a problem on the way home, 
right? You get there, kid got suspended for something or got, got, I don't know, got exposed to somebody. So now they're stuck at home for two weeks, all this stuff, right? And all of a sudden, all these things show up. And what I say today or what we read today in scripture is like, I don't got time for salt and light, right? This is a, I, I got time to complain. I got time to be frustrated. I got time to look at my situation and go, this isn't great, but I got no bandwidth anymore for salt and light. And I get that. And I've been there. And it's okay to feel that way. But can I help us understand something? Can I, can I tie it back into the sermon series we just wrapped up? We, we wrapped up a series last week called Squad, where we talked about the importance of biblical relationship and putting people around us who are going to, again, move us in the right direction and encourage us to be followers of Jesus the way that we're called to be. And you know what? When you get to a day like that, where things just go wrong and it's like, I do not want to be salt and light anymore. Do you know what you need? You need somebody who's maybe in your squad who you can call and say, today was rough. Can we get coffee? Can we FaceTime? Can I just vent to you for a while? And you call them and you have a conversation or you go to their house and you have a conversation and they listen to you. But you know what's super important is that that person is going to be salt and light to you. Because if they're salt and light to you, that means they make sure that as you are processing your anger, your frustration, your annoyance, whatever it is, you channel that and go in a positive direction rather than a negative direction. And out of your anger, frustration, you don't make sinful choices because of it. And so they hear you out and they engage with you and then they give you hope. Because there's someone that cares about you, that will listen to you, that will help you through the situation, that maybe can help you fix your car or help you watch your kid or help you do whatever you need to do. And when they are salt and light to you, that means you can then again be salt and light. Because what we know, and this is what it says even in verse 7, it says, if we are living in light as God is in light, then we have fellowship with each other. Many grains of salt do much better than one. A whole lot of candles together do a lot better than one. And so there's a, there's a fellowship aspect to this too, where we we bind together, we work together, we be salt and light to one another as followers of Jesus, as kingdom people, so then we can have a greater influence on the world around us. So that we can have a greater impact on it than it will have on us. As we continue through this passage, Jesus goes to a very interesting place in verse 17. Matthew 5:17, he says this, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I do not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Listen, we it's kind of a weird place to go. Like he talks about salt and light. Okay, I we can engage with that. That's still for the people listening. Might have been a little bit strange. And then he goes to this place. He goes, don't think that I've come to abolish the law, but I've come to accomplish it. Why? Why would he go there? Well, let me help us understand why. See, what he was talking about with this salt and light to the audience that he would have been around, what they understood was the way that you are different to the world around you is by following the rules. So they had over, they had hundreds of rules as Jews that they were supposed to follow, and they had a rule for everything, right? You're supposed to do this or not do this. On this day, you can do that and all these things, right? And so when they needed to know what to do, they would kind of just open the Old Testament or open the law, the first five books, and they would kind of use it as a rule book and go, what am I supposed to do in this situation? Find it. Okay, great. That's what I'm going to do. But then Jesus shows up and he goes, be salt and be light. That's a lot more nuanced than do this and do that. 
because there's not necessarily a playbook for how to be salt and light for every situation. So now he's calling them to something where he's like, you, this isn't as easy as just knowing the rules to follow. This is a situation where you've got to live in a certain way and figure out what this looks like in your personal situation every single day. This is a little more difficult. And what he knew they were going to say, because he was, we'll see it in a little bit in a story we're going to read, because he knew he wasn't going to follow the law to a T, he knew that they were going to say he was breaking the law. But here's what he says, right? I'm not coming to throw it out. I'm not coming to get rid of it. I'm coming to accomplish it. Here's what we know, right? A new command or a new rule does not mean that the old ones are useless, but it might be time to move on. My rules for my kids at seven, four, and seven months are very different than the rules would be, hopefully, when my kids are teenagers. Right? If my son came to me today and said, can I put some pizza rolls in the oven? I would say, no way. When he's 16, I hope I can say, yes, you can. Right? Different. It doesn't mean that the rule I give him today is useless. It doesn't mean that the rule I have him understand in this moment or at this time in life is garbage and I shouldn't give it to him. No, but the rules might change if he's able to show that he can have a little bit of a different rule set. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm not getting rid of them. I'm not saying they were worthless. I'm just saying if they're fulfilled, we can keep going. But he wants us to understand just how sure he is that these rules from the Old Testament, that the law were important. In verse 18 and 19, he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But everyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He says, don't get rid of them. It's not time for them to go unless they've been fulfilled. This is what Jesus knew. Jesus believed that the Old Testament pointed to him and that it must be fulfilled entirely. So many of the many of the laws have been fulfilled. And Jesus shows us that by the way that he lives. But it doesn't mean we look at them and go, oh, this was garbage for another time. Jesus says they have to be fulfilled. So if they've been fulfilled, we can move on. But if not, we should still keep them. And so that's maybe another conversation for another day where we dig into what that means. But be very clear, as we live as New Testament believers on this side of Jesus, we don't just want to look at the law and say it's not worth studying or it's not worth learning from or it's not worth understanding. Because Jesus himself was sure that they were important. He even believed that he was the fulfillment of those things. So in verse 20, here's how he wraps up this portion of the passage. He says, but I warn you, Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was a little bit of a blow, I think. Because the people listening to Jesus, many of them, were pretty normal, typical people. Fishermen, carpenters, kids, just listening. And so when Jesus started this portion of the passage that we were reading, and he starts to say them, you are salt. You are light because they were excited about this. This would have been Jesus giving them purpose and giving them understanding. And he was handing it over to them and they would have been built up by this. But then he says, unless your righteousness is better than the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what I would have thought if I was there? I'll never be as righteous as one of the Pharisees. 
they were the ones who followed all the rules. They were the ones who were more righteous than anyone else. So why does Jesus say this? Because he was setting them up to understand that the righteousness that he would give was far greater than the righteousness that we could achieve on our own. And so he sets them up with great expectations, but he gives them impossible odds. Why? Because he wants them to understand that the law he was just talking about can't save you. You can't be saved by just doing what you do, but we have to learn and accept who Jesus is and find his righteousness as our own, not that we can do it ourselves. And so guess what? It comes full circle. What's then our motivation for salt and light? It's not about following the rules. It's not about just chasing after the law. It's about living out of the place of righteousness that Jesus gives us and being salt and light because that's what he was as well. There's another passage I want to go to as we wrap up our time today. So you can go there. We're gonna, it's a long passage. We're not going to read all of it. It's John chapter 9. And I think that this story really grabs all of what we've talked about today and kind of puts a bow on it. So in John chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 1. And like I said, we're not going to read all of it. We're going to kind of bounce around in here. But you can go back and read all of it if you'd like. We'll start with verses 1 through 7. John 9, 1 starts like, like this. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. Jesus answered, this happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. Verse 5, he says this, but while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Let's pause for just a minute, right? There it is again. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And what did he just say before that? He says, listen, when God gives us something to do, do it quickly. I heard someone, as I was listening to a sermon a couple weeks ago, he said this, when scripture tells you to do something clearly, get it done quickly. If it's clear in scripture, do it quickly. That's what Jesus is saying. If you've got a job to do, God gives us, we only get so much time. We need to engage with it now and do it. So be salt and light. In verses 6 and 7 in John 9, it says, He spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, Go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Listen, this man, he was blind for a long from birth. He had never seen before. People knew him as a blind man. And so when Jesus does this, this gets a little bit of a stir going. It would stir you too if you knew someone that was blind and then they say, I just met this guy and he put mud on my face and now I can see. And so this starts to get around and what they do is they take this to the Pharisees. We're going to jump ahead to verses 13 through 15. It says, Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. Verse 15, The Pharisees asked the man all about it. He told them, He put the mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. Verse 16, Some of the Pharisees said, This man Jesus is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. And others said, but how can an ordinary sinner do such miraculous things? So there was a deep division among, of opinion among them. 
Jesus really messes these guys up, right? What they should have done was go back to what he said in Matthew chapter 5. What did he say? I'm not getting rid of the law, but I'm fulfilling it. This is why he said it, because he shows up and he heals somebody on the Sabbath, and they go, this guy can't be from God because he's sinning, because he's doing it on the Sabbath. He was taking the opportunity to be salt and light to this man by literally moving him from blindness, from darkness, and moving him to light by meeting Jesus. That's what he was doing. If he was following the law, what would he have had to say? Sorry, man, got to come back tomorrow. Can't do it today. How silly is that? And so Jesus says, no, we're not going to live by this anymore. We're going to take the opportunity to be salt and light when we have the chance. In verse 24 and 25, the last verses we'll read from this story, it says, so for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. This is his answer in verse 25. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. I woke up this morning, I couldn't see anything. And now, I can. I don't know whether the guy's a sinner or not, but I know he did that. Jesus shows up, and he is light. He is hope. He gives this man his sight. This is what I, this is what I think Jesus does. Jesus turns responsibility into opportunity. Living by the law means that we're living out of responsibility. Okay, I'll do it because I have to. Jesus says, not out of responsibility, out of opportunity. Out of the fact that it's not based on your righteousness, it's based on mine. I died for you, so you follow me. You live as kingdom people. You be salt and light. You take the opportunity and don't allow responsibility to get in the way. Again, if he was living it, doing his responsibility, he would have said, I have to come back tomorrow. Have you ever been in a space where, like, of no fault of your own, your responsibilities just got in the way of something you knew you wanted to do instead and should be doing? Maybe your work schedule got involved. Not your fault, but you missed your kid's ball game because of it. Right? Things like that just happen. What Jesus says is, I'm moving the responsibility out of the way so that we can take the opportunity. I'm not getting rid of the law. Let's fulfill it. So that way we can take the opportunity to be salt and light. My challenge question this week is this, and I'll explain it. When you walk into a room, does the light turn on? What does that mean, right? We talked about it a little before. They didn't have light switches. They'd set a candle, but we do. So the question is this. When you come into a room, when you come into a situation, when you engage with somebody, is there hope involved? Does the light go on? Are you the type of person that they're excited that you're going to be there because they know that you're going to be an encouragement to them? Now, here's what's easy. We could look at this and go, ah, oh, it's a little bit fluffy, right? We're just going to go live and be salt and be light and be the person everybody wants to be around and be encouraging and be positive all the time. That's a little bit. But here's what I mean by that. All right, let's just imagine that there's somebody in your class that needs help on their math homework. And you seem to be pretty good at math. And they come to you and they say, hey, would you help me with my math homework? And you do help them. And they come the next week and you do help them. And they come the next week and you do help them. And you just constantly are a source of help to this person. The opposite of that is, and this could be very true, they come to you and say, hey, would you help me? And you go, I just don't have time. I got this. I got that. I don't have time to do this. Or I'll help you once and I'm not doing it again. Guess what? If that's your attitude, I'm not saying you have to help everybody with their math homework, but if your attitude is that in a situation where we get to help, 
we will never get the opportunity to be light in that person's darkness. But if we do show up and we do help them and we are there for them when they need it, when we show up and, and we have that conversation before we're going to help with the math homework and we go, hey, how's your day going? And they go, it's fine. Now you get the opportunity to go, what does that mean? How can I help? How can I do more than just math homework with you? And that gives us the opportunity to then be Jesus in that situation. Why? Because we showed up for math homework. It's a simple way to be salt and light. But sometimes salt and light comes by showing up with a cup of coffee or with math homework or with whatever it might be. So that then when we engage with that person a little deeper, we get to be the light in their darkness. We get to be Jesus to them in that moment. Let me end with one story. I was visiting, uh, you guys know, a month ago we were in Colorado. Visited another friend of mine who's named Mike, not Wisconsin Mike. This is Colorado Mike. And so we were out there visiting, and they used to live here. They went to Gateway when we were here, and um, we were in the same small group with them. And so we hadn't seen them in five years since they moved. And so when we went out there, they only lived about an hour from Denver. So we made sure we drove up and we had dinner with them. And so Mike and I went to get the food, and we were driving around. He's showing me a little bit, and he started to have a conversation with me about something that their previous church had done. He told me that their previous church had realized that there was a strip club in their town. And so what they decided to do about that was they decided to try and buy it. And so multiple times they went to the owner. They said, here, we'll give you this much. He'd say, no, it's, no, I can make way more than that. So <laughs> multiple times they kept upping their price until finally he said, that's good enough. I'll take that. Now listen to me. There would be a lot of ways for us to make an argument that that was not the responsible thing to do with church money, to spend it on a strip club. Could have gone to missions. Could have gone over here. Could have fixed this. Could have done that. Right? Why are we continuing trying to give more and more money and give it to somebody who owns a strip club? Why don't we just ignore the strip club and hope it goes away? But here's what they did. They bought it. They shut it down. And they got everyone who worked there another job. So they came in, they saw something in their environment that was a sinful thing, that was a source of darkness. They became salt to that thing, moved it in the other direction, took it over, and then got everybody else a job so that they could have a job where they didn't need to do something like that and gave them hope as a part of it. This is where the law would say, you probably shouldn't spend money on that. But when Jesus says, be salt and light, there's a nuance there, and we get to decide how to be salt and light in every situation. And because of that, there was no longer that source of sin in their town. And people came to know Jesus because they were willing to do that. It's a difficult thing to figure out how to be salt and light sometimes. It's not the easiest thing to do every day. Jesus didn't say it was easy, but he did say we're called to do it. So this is, this is who we are, right? If we are people of the kingdom, if we're followers of Jesus, each day, even when it's difficult, we get to be salt and light. We get to figure out what that means. And sometimes it's going to be really difficult. We're not going to want to do it. It's not going to be the day that we want to do it because of other circumstances. And yet Jesus was salt and light in the worst circumstances as well. So this week, when you walk into a room, does the light turn on? Are you that source of hope 
source of light, not just far away from a city on a hill, but in your home, in your dorm room, in your classroom. Does the light turn on? Are you salt and light? Are you reflecting who Jesus is to the people around you? Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you give us this responsibility of being salt and light, even though it is very difficult at times. And I ask that you give us each wisdom as to what that means in each of our lives, how we are salt and light to the people around us and not just from far away, just from people that see us and think good things about us, but that when we get to know them, when we get to dig in and do life together, that we would be that salt and light as well, that hope would be given to them because they know us. And that our motivation for that would be reflecting them to you. And that you would get the glory. Lord, we pray that we would encourage that in one another as a church family as well. In Jesus' name.